So, tonight and next week, we'll talk about Sangha, which can't really talk about one without the other two. The whole point of the mantra really is to bring the, the three together. One question that we can play with tonight as I talk and as we talk together, and then even next week when you meet with your small groups, is the question, and it can be some of our homework, how does awakening, how does insight express itself in real life? Do we know it when we see it? So if there is something called awakening or enlightenment, moments of awakening, moments of enlightenment, what is the expression of that? How do we recognize the expression of that in our own life and in other people? What does it look like? And that helps us get a sense of Sangha. You know, it's the manifestation or the expression of Buddha knowing Dhamma. What does that actually look like when we bump up against it? So I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Buddha being awake, or the awakenedness, the ultimate subject, that which knows, Dhamma, the ultimate object, the way it is, the way things are, and then Sangha is you know, the beautiful expression, or the beautiful manifestation, or the beautiful response wholehearted, authentic, free response. In a formal way, you know, Sangha sometimes might be described as the sila part of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It feels a little simplistic to think of it that way. You know, the nice the nice thing about talking about practice in terms of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, it has a very alive feeling. Instead of, you know, developing the Eightfold Path, which can feel a little more sterile or linear. But, you know, the idea of when, you know, recognizing Sangha in terms of speech, like when speech is arising in that uh, authentic, useful, uninhibited way, not caught up with uh, neurotic fears or desires. One last way to think about the three refuges, being goodness, seeing goodness, and expressing or doing goodness. And that's actually more of the taste of it. You know, there's a paradoxical feeling of solidity or being grounded when the mind comes into balance in this way. The quality of knowing, it's sort of a it's like a sense of being that's really good, really pure. And then what, what that goodness experiences or sees, it also seems to be good in the sense that it belongs. So Dhamma, like seeing things as they are, the sense of it that it all belongs. It's all as it should be. It's not like, oh not what I expected or not what I want. So being goodness sees goodness. Not that things are sweet, not that kind of goodness, but that it belongs. And then, uh, you know, expressing or doing good, it's like when there's all that goodness, our way of being, our way of acting and doing is also good. There's that famous teaching in the Zen tradition, forget exactly how the story goes, but 
somebody, you know, through some trials and tribulations, gets to meet up with a great teacher and has this prepared question, you know, how can you summarize the Buddha's 45 years of teaching? You know, tell me now. And the teacher responds, an appropriate response. That's the summation of what the Buddha did, what the Buddha's life was about. It was an appropriate response. Or, if we expand on that a little bit, you know, it's like, Sangha is the natural free response. It's always appropriate because it's not coming out of somebody, somebody's neurotic wanting to be good, wanting to respond correctly, but it's really a natural response. It's coming out of nature. Because they're, you know, in, an, in an, a moment of enlightenment, a moment of awakening, there aren't those boundaries. So what would, you know, the response will be a natural response. It's going to come out of the whole system. We may, from a personal point of view, not like our response or somebody's response. So, just because, you know, the, let's say there's a fully awakened human being or a good friend who's having a, a moment of relatively pure awakening, and they do something, they respond, you know, they act, say something, don't say something, look a certain way at us. And to us, it may seem like you know, they're weird or, you know, it's like that story goes, you know, we might run into a Buddha, but it doesn't mean we're going to know we've run into a Buddha. It takes one to know one, maybe. <laughs> but we'll know if we are a Buddha, we can know that. We can know how uh, appropriate, how natural the response in that moment or in this moment is or was. like sometimes we do something and it causes problems and then we look back you know in hindsight we go you know was I off was I coming from some constricted tight neurotic place and we look and we sometimes yeah yeah <laughs> we were off but not always sometimes we look back and it may not, it may not be that we responded with perfect knowledge remember having an enlightened moment doesn't mean we know everything about the situation. It just means that given what is known, right, there's no artificial, in a sense, artificial boundaries being projected. There's no artificial constriction. So given what is known, it all gets, it all plays into the response freely. It's like, uh, an appropriate response is whatever is present and whatever is past is informing the response in the moment. Because the mind isn't constricted, it isn't excluding anything. Another way we say this is we're wholehearted, we're really showing up. Everything's showing up and we're responding from that place. So we look back on our, you know, what we said or what we did and we see that we have a sense, maybe an intuitive sense of the purity of our intentions. Like, I didn't have an agenda. I wasn't trying to manipulate things. I wasn't trying to get even or be seen. It was a, you know, there's that sense of the absence of neurotic stuff. It was a pure response or relatively pure response. I was just doing the best I could. You know, that's sometimes how we say it. This, you know, I think this is an important point about Sangha. It's not like there's a map to follow. This is why I was a little hesitant to use the Sila section of the Eightfold Path. You know, right speech, and then, you know, right speech has four parts. You know, not lying, not being harsh, not slandering or using your speech as a weapon, not having idle speech, and talk about right action in terms of not stealing, not harming not engaging in sexual misconduct, 
bright livelihood, you know, there are these sort of aspects of bright livelihood. And it can feel like, oh, there's a map. Sangha is a map. I just need to follow and then I'll be Sangha. I'll finally, you know, rise to that level and I can call myself Sangha and we can wear the S badge and I'm Sangha. Yeah. But, it, but I think it's different than that. It's, you know, it's this, like I mentioned a little bit ago, there's this very dynamic sense. One of the nice things about using the three refuges as a practice theme, as a way of practicing, is it can't be grasped. It's a subtle teaching, which is why we tend not to use it as a practice thing. You know, we just, in a way, we just want to be told what to do. Sit down, bring your attention to your breath, keep bringing your attention back when it wanders, you know, don't kill mosquitoes, and on and on like that. But with this dynamic of Buddha knowing Sangha expressing, Buddha knowing Dhamma expressing Sangha, it's like, well, where do you begin with that? Because it's a very alive thing. So Sangha is something that arises moment to moment. We can't predict what Sangha should look like. There's no way of mapping it out, nailing it down at all. The only way we can know, you know, hopefully this doesn't get neurotic, but we can look back and we can, in a sense, looking back, taste it. Well, how did that taste? Did it seem off? Did it seem like it was constricted or fearful or needy? wanting something in a way that I wasn't seeing, wasn't being included in the whole response in the moment. So it doesn't mean we're necessarily free of neurotic activity, but if there's neurotic activity, that's also being included. That's being known, Buddha's knowing that. It's just something that's happening, it's being included. So the response included that that was there, it was being known what we said, what we did, what we didn't say, what we didn't do, all of that came out of everything. And it's not even so much just including our internal experience, it's also including all external experience too. That's what makes up Sangha. There's a beautiful place and uh, Rip Anderson wrote a wonderful book a while back. He's a then teacher in California was uh, a while back the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. Still teaches at Green Gulch. Written a number of books. This book is called Being Upright, and it's his book on the uh, what is it, 14 Bodhisattva trainings. I forget what it is. I think it's 14, but it includes the uh, five precepts. Um, sort of an expanded version of that for those in that tradition that uh, take up this training to become bodhisattvas living and practicing for the benefit of all and so this is a chapter on right speech and it's really you know the reason I'm bringing it up is you know part of sangha part of being sangha is this right speech and in particular it's the part of right speech that's about listening to our response, like in order, if we think of Sangha as uh, an appropriate response, a response that's coming out of the totality instead of out of the self, then in order for our response in this moment to come out of the totality, there has to be that really beautiful listening. Everything, you know, internally and externally. So here's a little bit from this chapter. When you're sailing in a boat, you can see the circle of water around you, but not the whole ocean. If you think that the circle of water is the ocean, then you are incorrect. Likewise, if you wholeheartedly attempt to tell the truth without being aware of the limitations of your vision, then your words will be a further enactment of your ignorance. If you are aware of your limited vision, which is a step toward telling the truth, then you will be somewhat anxious about whether you are telling the whole truth. Feeling such anxiety, you may hold more tightly to your limited view of the truth as the truth, and to assuage the anxiety 
try to prove that it is true. On the other hand, if you attempt to speak the truth, if your attempt to speak the truth is grounded in the recognition of your own limits of vision, then the truth will be realized and you will be freed from your anxiety. So, in order to have an appropriate response in a moment, any moment of our life, our awareness, our understanding in that moment has to include the limitations. We are a limited human being. Our seeing, our knowing is limited by this moment, by whatever is here in this moment. But we're not unaware of that limitation. We're aware of that limitation. It goes on. He says, The truth is not realized just by me saying what I think is the truth. Truth arises when my truth is offered but not placed above the truth of others. The whole truth is realized in the marriage of the minds of all beings. As is said in some wedding ceremonies, I, I, plight, my, I plight thee my troth. <laughs> in other words, I engender my truth to you. The truth is not held on my side or on your side. I engender my truth to others and the faith that I will thus be liberated from my own small truth and realize the oceanic truth. I can never see beyond my own circle of water, and yet, being aware that my circle is just a circle and not the ocean, I am liberated from it. I like this teaching because it really helps us to understand how being an imperfect human being, having a conditioned mind, and being under the influence of our conditioning, of our habit energy, doesn't necessarily have to limit our freedom and our appropriate response, being able to be appropriate in the moment. We just have to understand how it is. We don't need to be perfect. That makes it much more accessible, I think, for me at least. Another aspect of uh, the Sangha is uh, just a sense of lineage. And Rev. Anderson talks about that a little bit, about how you know, the appropriate response needs to include everybody else's truth. Or at least, at, at a minimum, includes our recognition that our circle is just this. It's limited. So then we can have a sense, like uh, this, this maybe speaks to us more of how we generally use the word sangha in terms of spiritual community, and we can have a sense of you know, the lineage or the community, the group wisdom. Um, some of you know that a lot of the Vipassana retreats, sort of a tradition, not always help, but often help that they have more than one teacher leading retreats, especially the longer retreats. And I remember Joseph Goldstein talking once about how, in a really beautiful way, how you know any one of them at any one time isn't likely to do a very good job at representing the teachings. But maybe five people taking turns doing it together might have a may be more skillful at presenting the teachings of the Buddha. And we can think about that as a community, too, here at Common Ground. Like, you know, if, for example, if we just said, well, we're relying on Mark's wisdom, and that's enough. You know, that's a pretty precarious uh, foundation for a community. But if we all feel responsible to be as wise as we can be, to show up as much as we can be, to speak up when that seems appropriate, to listen when that seems appropriate, to share the responsibility of the health of the community, well then, we might actually do pretty well as a community, and we might survive the inevitable bumps that happen in community life, with different challenges, whatever they might be, like even the challenge of success or conflict. 
or divisiveness of some sort. And this is true also in families, you know, like especially extended families and where there are a lot of adults and we can't just rely on, well, they're the parent or they're responsible. But like sometimes when we see something, we have to, it's our responsibility to show up. And we can't say, well, I can't say anything because I don't understand. Well, who does understand completely? You know, who does have perfect knowledge or perfect clarity or a perfect perspective. That if we all speak up with a, as much integrity and respectfulness, you know, we might all hear enough to be able to respond appropriately. And to think of it as an organic process, like we don't have to get it right in the first, you know, first movement. It may be a couple steps back, one step forward, three steps back, ten steps forward could be a messy interactive process and all of us who have been involved in different communities, right, we all have, we know how messy it can be. I noticed just back in terms of our bigger community of the United States, it's so easy to not want to be a community member, you know, and, and it's just so much easier to blame all those other people who I think are making it all the way that it is and somehow see myself as not part of it. I mean, all of us on the sidelines are part of why it's the way that it is right now. Or all of us who are complaining or all of us who are angry and doing something out of the anger or self-righteous and doing something out of the self-righteousness or arrogantly convinced of her own right view and acting out of that. That's why it is this way. This, you know, whatever this is in any of our communities, is exactly the perfect expression of all the inputs. So part of Sangha is like recognizing that there's no getting away. You know, it's not, it's not like we can get out of our responsibility. And... Uh, that we're, we're willing to enter and do the best and learn from, you know, learn from our response or appropriate response. So we see the, the vastness, you know, of the influences. We have this respect and even gratitude for all the pieces that together allow for an appropriate response, a beautiful response, a skillful response. Of course, we're grateful, like, because we need, it's like we need everybody. We need all of our relationships, all of our connections, everything we see. We need the past, too. We need all of that in order to respond appropriately as best we can in the moment. We can't leave anything out. It's like even, you know, in terms of how to be a good citizen, it has to include, you know, that doesn't mean we have to read about it obsessively, but it has to include the fact that this guy went into the Sikh temple and shot these people. It has to include that. That's part of it. It has to include, you know, whatever reaction we have to that information. Some of you know this wonderful teaching that uh, Houston Smith, you might remember, I think he's dead now, he uh, was a long-time religious studies professor, I think first at Washington University in St. Louis and then eventually in um, MIT in Massachusetts. And back in the 50s, he did a program on PBS about different religions of the world. It was sort of that have made a splash at the time and uh, wrote that famous book. What was it called? No, no, that's just, that's just Campbell. Uh, something about the variety of religions, but I can't remember the title. The Religions of the World or something like that. Anyway, it was famous. Many, 
many uh, editions of it. And uh, he was influenced by Vivekananda's teachings back when he, you know, he's a Methodist by, by birth and, and then later as an adult. But he explored a lot of different things, including these yogic teachings from Vivekananda, the famous Swami who came to the States in the late 1800s and made a big splash. Um, and then uh, he went to Japan and studied in Japan. Or maybe I think it was Joseph Campbell. Now I'm getting mixed up. I think it was Joseph Campbell who went to Japan. But I'm not sure. It's one of the two. Was it Stephen Smith? Oh, okay. So anyway, he did a sashim, a, a retreat in Japan. And uh, he asked the teacher, like, what is the meaning of Zen at the end of this grueling sashim? And he wasn't really prepared for it. And it was a bit of uh, a difficult time for him. But at the end, he had a meeting with the teacher. He said, well, what is the... Please just tell me the meaning of that, of what we're doing. And he gave this wonderful response. He said, infinite gratitude for all things past, infinite, uh, I wrote down companionship, but it's not that, infinite service for all things present, and infinite responsibility for all things future. And to me, this is a great definition of Sangha, infinite gratitude for all things past. I, we, we want to draw on that lineage of everything we know, everything we've ever felt or seen or heard. We want to be grateful, draw on it, because it, it informs our life. And we want to have this sense of service, this wanting to appropriately respond because we care for everything present. And then this deeper sense of responsibility that what we're setting in motion for the future. So a sense of responsibility that it matters how we are, who we are. I want to take a little time and then lead this, have this lead into a group discussion, talking about spiritual community as an incubator. And this could be like your relationship with a Dharma friend or a teacher your relationship with a bigger community like Common Ground or a subset of Common Ground like the Buddhist Studies community or your family. But to think about communities as incubators for little Buddhists, places where we rub and scrub, places that teach us so much, that expose so much. You know, one of the things I'm sure you've noticed is this uh, sympathetic response when we we have them around different groups and you know we're one kind of person maybe when you're at common ground but in a different setting with a different group of people you're a different person that's actually when you really pay attention to this it teaches us a lot about anatta who we are what we are is a function of where we are who are around. It isn't like there's a mark, but he is, whatever he is, it's just uh, something that arises out of the collective, you know, where he is at in that moment. And just to observe ourselves, like that would be a great study, and feel free to do it and then report on it in the small groups next week or later on, and just talk about it this evening if you've already done this sort of reflection just to track the different selves, the different responses, different expressions. And Sangha, in a sense, is an expression. So the different expressions that arise dependent on the different conditions. And like some of those expressions break our heart in a sense of feeling hopefully a wholesome kind of shame like oh that is not what I want to add to the mix you know this world and where it's going that is not what I want to be adding that greedy um, who gives a crap about the future you know like when I you know sometimes I'm really careful about my habits of consumption but I notice sometimes I don't want to care 
right now. I don't want to have to be burdened by the thought of what's being set in motion. I prefer not to know. I prefer ignorance. And then we can notice that later. You know, we can see that response, that expression of our life. And we can be ashamed of it. Oh. I mean, we can also understand, well, that's how it was. Couldn't have been other than it was, given those causes and conditions. But we can also let it touch our heart. In the same way, we can see another response that's quite beautiful and inspiring. And it doesn't matter that it was us that responded that way. We can be as moved by our own response as we could by reading a story of the Dalai Lama or some other reported saint, you know, and something she did or he did. Because it's not personal. We see that that beautiful response, you know, came out of the mix. And we can really appreciate that. So we're not taking it personally, but we're learning from it. What, how does that inform how I see what comes out of different situations? That's why, like, when you read the suttas, when you do a sort of a careful reading, one of the things that's mentioned over and over again in different contexts is the importance of spiritual friendship. And generally, the technical meaning, normally we think just somebody who's also read a few Buddhist books or gone on a couple of retreats, but the technical meaning of that, when you look at the discourse, is somebody who has some really deep insight, somebody who has some experience of awakening. Those are the kinds of friends the Buddha suggesting we hang out with. Because it has a real effect on us. I remember in, somewhere in Cartoli's book, he talks about how, you know, I think he's talking about couples. And uh, if one of the two people in a relationship uh, has deep insight, it's really hard for the other person, either they're going to leave or they're going to really get serious about their practice. Because it's really hard to be with somebody who has some insight if you're not really into your practice. Now, maybe that doesn't make sense, but there's... It's like when we're around somebody uh, who's coming from a really grounded, deep, and wise place, sympathetically, all of our tight, constricted places stand up. You know, there's somebody freely spacious and loving and inclusive. And in that ocean, you know, just sort of in the vicinity of that ocean, anything that's tight really hurts, really is felt. So either we practice relaxing, practice releasing, or we defend ourselves in one way or another or get out of there. And it's the same way when we're around people who have a lot of neurotic energy, really, really, really afraid, really, really angry, really, really needy. Notice how it's not easy to be around them unless we're really grounded in, uh, in wisdom. Because when we're around them, we tend to get, we tend to vibrate like they're vibrating. It's why there's such high burnout rates for people who do work with people who are in really difficult straits. One of the things I've noticed, you know, that um, people get really talented, people who do that work for a long time either become enlightened or they get really callous. They kind of have a whole facade, and it may be a really well-greased facade, you know, like on the surface it looks like they really know what they're doing, but they're really not there. They're not vulnerable, they're not sensitive, they're kind of have several layers of like personality patterns that they lead with. That that's actually who you're interacting with. And I'm sure you've noticed sometimes we do interact with these people and it's like it's not like they're not saying the right things or you know, they've got all the right gestures, but there's just some intuitive sense that they're not really there. That they've got these defensive patterns operating and they've learned they somehow have learned to retreat. Through the, you know, through the sort of setting in stone these patterns, these ways of being. 
So we want to just learn. Any community we can learn from. We can be around people who are really frightened and fearful and angry, and we can learn from that. We can be around enlightened people. We won't be able to control all of our communities. When we can, it's really nice to cultivate friendships with people who have some wisdom, who have a lot of space in their minds, a lot of freedom in their minds and hearts. It is the easiest way to awaken. You know, one of the jokes and truths in the Buddhist tradition that, you know, you'll hear a lot in Asian culture especially is something like, it's really too hard to awaken these days, so I'm just going to develop a lot of merit. I'm going to do a lot of generosity, you know, support the monks and nuns, for example, and hope that sometime later I'll be reborn at a time when there's a Buddha. Because it's so much easier to awaken when there's a Buddha, when there's somebody who's powerfully free, because we just get close and hang out, and then just start to sympathetically vibrate with that person's awakening, their freedom. And then all we need is a little pointing out, and we kind of realize, oh, this is how it is. This is the way that it is. And, you know, we kind of get that from the suttas, which is like popcorn. People become enlightened. The Buddha gives a talk. Three people become fully awakened. Or often at the end of a talk we'll say, and so-and-so after hearing the talk, ordained and in a very short time, realized full awakening. <laughs> you know, practice for three weeks and realized full awakening. But really, they, all these stories like that, if they don't get it right in the talk, then, you know, they have to ordain and practice for a few days. <laughs> and then we wonder, like, what's wrong with us? And if you've had the opportunity to be around somebody in that place, you'll know how, like, there is a, there's, even in a superficial way, there's a tangential high that people get. It's like, you just feel good being around those people. Their ease, their love, their um, resiliency is contagious in just the way that it is in opposite situations. We get, you know, pick up the disease of other people, the erotic diseases of other people. Just like who among us hasn't picked up the neurotic disease of fear since the shift happened after 9-11? There's just a lot more fear and divisiveness. Seems, and I'm not saying it's specifically caused by 9-11, that could have been part of uh, the stream of causes and conditions. But, you know, I've been affected. I feel it. I notice I'm more divisive, attracted to divisiveness, wanting to dwell there, wanting to feed that fire. So we're affected. So part of Sangha is like understanding this and then intentionally creating community. You know, there's that famous example, I don't know how good the science is, but I remember reading a while back about the geese flying in formation. You probably have read something about it. You know, scientists, uh, biologists have wondered for a long time, like, why do they do that? And it's kind of amazing, you know, not just the geese, but birds in general, like how they flock and move together. But evidently, there's something in terms of the aerodynamic quality that flying in B formation makes a significant uh, dent in the efficiency or increase in the efficiency of the flying. Just less calories are burned when you're flying in formation. Not for the guy in the lead, but they rotate. You know, So the guy in the lead, a person in the lead is there for a while, and then they switch. And even if one evidently gets hurt, this article said that one of the a couple other birds would go down with it, kind of take care of it, so that when they start to fly again, they can at least switch among the three of them until they find a bigger flock to join. So this is the same thing, you know, and the Buddha teaches us about how we're going against the stream. You know, the momentum of our culture is toward delusion, attachment, aversion. So this path of awakening, we're going against the stream, we can come together, we can intentionally, intelligently come together and create community 
that have awakened qualities. You know, even though any one of us may not be consistently very wise or awake in community, but in any given night, you know, there may be enough people who are in a wise, spacious, loving, awakened place that the place itself, the community, the maybe even physically the space itself, begins to have that momentum, begins to be an archetype for that. And you know how physicists will tell us this whole idea of time and space, these are concepts. So, you know, one of the things we do here at Common Ground every once in a while is we'll do this bodhicitta aspiration where we're taking refuge and, uh, and uh, acknowledging that we're living for the benefit of others. And we specifically bring to mind this very wide and deep river, this stream or river of goodness. All of the people in the past who had moments of awakening, moments of an appropriate response, moments of wisdom and compassion, all the people today, all the people in the future. And we visualize it as this great, deep, powerful river. And then we intentionally connect with that river. You know, so you can be all alone and there's really no barrier to Sangha, like that connection with a sympathetic vibe, that positive sympathetic vibe. It's really what we're doing with the mind. We can be around a lot of people who are very frightened. This is what people do. You know, what do they do when they're in a really bad situation? They, they pray to God. You know, that's another person's way of connection, connecting with Sangha, this archetypal Sangha. The beautiful qualities that aren't actually distant, that we can tune in, you know, attune to them and come into a sympathetic resonance with them. And then we become protected and uh, part of that. We express that wisdom, that awakening. So one thing to keep in mind for this week, you know, besides what I've mentioned thus far, is, you know, really looking at uh, being interested in sightings of Sangha, you know, your own expression of Sangha, other people's expression of Sangha, connecting with Sangha when you're with other people, connecting with Sangha when you're not with Sangha, but just doing it through your imagination, or if you want a stronger word, you know, doing it psychically, by really tapping into that, that stream, that ocean of Sangha. But not being afraid to tap into this. Sometimes when we do metta practice, you might have that sense too, that let's say you really tap into loving kindness. And it's just like uh, this image is used sometimes of an upwelling spring, you know, how it wells up. It has its own force, like bountiful, immeasurable, boundless, exalted, right? Some of those words we use in some of the chants. And you can have that sense of sangha like welling up, that sense of great space, sense of great resilience and fearlessness, great love, compassion, great patience. And just a sense of, you know, the innumerable beings that are wishing us well, that have our back. I mean, why not imagine? I mean, the fact that we can imagine that and be moved by that makes it real. You know, the fact that it has an effect means that it's real. You know, that the sense that there are loving beings who really care. They understand what it's like to be a living being, what it's like to have a conditioned mind, and they really care. And they've been through this. That's the point. Like, they've been ignorant, like we are at times, ignorant. And they really care about it. And they have our back. And they're wishing us well. And they've done the practice, so they've cut a groove, and that groove, like, how to go against the stream. It's already cut. It's already there for us. And then when we tap into it, we're sort of 
widening that group a little bit, making it easier for other people, doing our part. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people, your own experiences with Sangha, personal and community settings, what's gotten in the way, and of course, any questions that you might have about what I've said tonight. What comes to mind? Yeah, Janet. Um, when you first defined Sangha, or when, during the guided meditation, when you were talking about Sangha being this tendency to include everything, the first thing I thought of was coming to Common Ground for the introductory class. <laughs> and, um, like, it was a little chaotic, this class. There were cell phones going off, people were getting up and leaving the room and coming in the room late or whatever. And, and um, there you were, just kind of sitting in the middle, and there was room for all of it. It was like you were unflappable. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is really, I could, I mean, it just was a really great um, demonstration of Sangha for me. I didn't have that label for it at that time, but I was like, I really respected how, like, nobody was getting tight around all of the activity that was happening. Like, behind that all, there was just room for, for all of it. So, anyway, I was like, well, um, that was kind of how I chose Common Ground, that, that chaotic introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, I guess I have a, my, that's my comment. My question is, um, I sort of noticed that whenever, um, Whenever I manufacture a self that's responding to something, it's sure fire suffering. Like, like <laughs> suffering is right there. So my tendency is to think, oh, well, all I have to do is try and be as neutral as possible, and then the perfect response will come up. But somehow I don't think that's quite right. Yeah. Well, you can experiment with that, and you'll probably learn something that you then have to tease out, like like how fear might be part of that idea of being as neutral as possible. You know, fear of making a mistake, for example. And then you can tease out that fear. Just like uh, having the self, like just running in with your self-view and acting on your self-view, you can tease out, like, part of that might be some real wisdom, like that willingness to step in, to step forward might be there may be some really wholesome qualities there but the arrogance or the certainty may not be that useful and maybe there's a way of showing up stepping in without the arrogance or maybe there's a way of holding back without it being an agenda but just sort of a natural patience a natural taking a few breaths a natural like curiosity let me just feel what's going on let me just really taste the chaos here before I add my two cents, you know, what I think I should do. I mean, I really had to learn that, and I really have appreciated that lesson in my life, because I tend to be an impulsive type. And so, I've really learned that, uh, that and as I was saying a few minutes ago, that, you know, in terms of meetings and other problems that need to be resolved, that if I just sort of hang out in the middle of it long enough, and throw out a lot of my own ideas but not to attach them hear the other ideas that are being thrown out and just sort of let it be ambiguous for a while I mean generally there's uh, a relatively good choice gets made if if we can hang out in that place where a lot of things are coming up a lot you know a lot of debating you know this is they talk about this in terms of management side you know people are seen as good managers if they surround themselves with people who can get in there and talk about this and listen to the other people and argue maybe and debate and the manager sort of lets it happen kind of keeps it relatively healthy and uh, out of that mixing that great mixing some clarity can come up and they even do this in terms of policy now it's like instead of figuring out the right way and then telling everybody to do it, they said, we don't know the right way, so we're giving a lot of you money, and all we're asking you to do 
is just take good notes about how much of a failure your way turned out to be or how successful your way turned out to be and share it with everybody. You know, and it's like, uh, that's also, you know, how Sangha works is that a lot of us are making mistakes in our lives. And, you know, when we share with each other, we learn from those mistakes. I mean, we've heard some amazing things just here in the Buddhist Studies class over the years in small groups and big groups. And a lot of people are being really wise. And sometimes somebody speaks up and it, there's a certain ringing power to what they said, even if it's relatively simple, but just like the clarity and the truth of who they are in their speaking from their experience really affects all of us to some degree. Thanks, Janet, for sharing that. Other thoughts? Yeah, Robin. that a lot in how I am with my immediate family, you know, just, and it's, you know, there's, I totally get the causes and conditions that make me act and be the way that I act and be with my family, my brothers and sisters, my dad, but, uh, but it, it's uneasy, you know, what I see, I'm uneasy with, but, but I understand it, you know, and it, it's just sort of this poignant place in my life, um, and I think it's changing. But part of the way it's changing is because I'm really relaxing with being who I am and appreciating like the momentum that's been set in motion. It's not so easy to change. Like just because we see that we're phony, for example, in a situation, we need to appreciate that seeing that we're phony and not expect that we're going to immediately turn around because that <coughs> that phoniness is being co-created by that whole situation. And seeing that we're being phony is just one piece of that whole dynamic. It's an important piece, but it's not necessarily going to change everything immediately. Well, the other part of that is that you are to be Yeah, and then what we tend to do is overcompensate. We swing too far, you know. And yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, when we think we can get some safety by acting a certain way, then we want more safety. So I act even more. Than, you know what I mean? That's just the tendency to overdo it, and then, uh, and then you know, eventually it starts to stand up. Hopefully, and we notice that. You tell us. You can tell us in more next week. Other thoughts come to mind? Samples? Experiencing Sangha, being Sangha? Yeah, Ty. I had a Ty experienced this last week that was kind of like I like that there was some I was at a state park. And there were some kids who had been gone for like an hour or so, and their mother was getting worried about them. They were out in a canoe out in the lake, the lake, with my binoculars, and I see that, oh, there they are. And one of them is in the water, and they're trying to get them back in using the paddles. <laughs> they're not going anywhere, and they're not moving. And um, the whole thing, from a certain perspective, was a kind of mess, you know, that these. 15-year-old and a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old were out in that 
community life anyway, you know, kind of thing. And there's so a lot of it. And from my background, there wasn't any part of it that could not be totally ripped on, you know. There was no person involved who could have just been really criticized harshly. Um, and I found a paddle, I found a paddle on a boat over there, and I found a canoe, and I called the mom, and we went out. Got these kids in the hole, you know, and then they paddled away, and I, there was the seven and the nine year old, and I, you know, the wind is blowing, I can't paddle, you know, it's just, it was, you know, it's not, but, but I had a really different um, personal experience of it. It was just all very calm and very positive, kind of fun adventure, which is very different from yeah. what I would expect of myself. A lot of things that I expected, would have expected of myself to behave in this way or that way or that way, I didn't. And it was really astounding. Yeah. Did everybody hear it, Todd? So he was saying that uh, uh, he was at a, at a state park and way far away, uh, three kids were in their canoe and the mother had been looking for them and he had his binoculars, he saw them. Anyway, a lot of judgment came up in time <laughs> because he could, you know, see all the problem. Like, why did the mother let the three kids go out on their own and why, and on and on like that. But the long and short of it was, you know, Ty went with the mother, got them, they were safe, they were alive. But the, the point is that even though we can see that kind of tendency of the mind to be critical, to be judgmental, doesn't mean we have to pick it up. And Ty said that in the end, I forget what your words were at the end, but... I was just astounded how I, how I did behave. Yeah. Yeah, that we can be free just because we have this negative conditioning doesn't mean we have to live it out. We don't need to be afraid of it. We only have to be afraid of not seeing it. That's the, that's the thing we want to be afraid of. When we're, it's like what we're not aware of, we should be afraid of. If we see it, then we, we can have at least some sense of, oh yeah, be awake to that, because that's not going to help anybody. And I think we do, you know, that kind of judgment. It's a way of protecting ourselves. Like, we don't want to be responsible for the kids across the lake. We don't know what they're doing. You know, I didn't come here to do that. You should... So we, we use that judgment, that critical mind, to sort of not be responsible for all things. But that's just like, that's one of the aspects of Sangha. We realize there's nobody we're not responsible for. Like it, there's just no way not to be responsible for any for everybody for all things, and it doesn't mean we can't go to sleep at night. And but it's just like if something shows up in front of us, we're responsible to see that. And if we push it aside, like I don't want to see that, I don't want to know that, then there will be consequences for that closing down. And then just to sort of own that. Do you have something, Paul? Yeah. I have to end with this. Now that you were talking about before, like you can reflect on all the data that's been generated throughout time and happens back to me. I sometimes do that, and, you know, I can wake up a lot of wholesome um, feelings towards Sangha, especially like in the school where I work. And, you know, I imagine my colleagues or students, and, and it's a wonderful feeling. But I. I'm really good at thinking about Sangha, but when I'm in Sangha with those students and those colleagues, um, you know, it's, it's very different. <laughs> because when I'm meditating and reflecting on it in Meta, I'm just thinking about the wholesome qualities and my well wishing for them. But then in the interaction with them, well, they're all, all buttons are being pushed and all the triggers. And so, you know, I have a sort of romantic ideal of the Sangha which I can generate. But it's always Buddha knowing Dhamma expressing Sangha. So the key is not to go to the ideal, but the immediacy of the moment. Because what is Buddha knowing? Well, it's knowing this 
anger or this irritation. So sangha is like, well, what's the appropriate response to the irritation I'm feeling or the impatience I'm feeling towards my colleagues? What's the appropriate response? That's where sangha manifests, not to the ideal of including all the students, all the faculty, but that simple moment of having space around your own irritation and understanding around your own irritation and patience around your own irritation. Like that's how Sangha manifests in that moment. And that's one of the downsides of the formal loving-kindness practice is it can make the mind idealistic in the sense that it has this ideal of including all. But what we want to get from our formal loving-kindness practice is that the immediacy of it, it's like... uh, this capacity, like when we're doing the formal practice, we might have the ideal of, of all beings, for example. But what's really important is the heart's warmth and inclusivity with that ideal. So that's what we want to remember. And then in our practice, in our daily life practice, we want to bring that, so be, do that same process, not with the ideal, but with, with what's right there in the moment, whatever it is. So if we're suffering, then we're connecting with that suffering. Yeah, and not, not, don't get confused by the ideal. It's just a beautiful thing, like you said. And so when you do have that beautiful ideal, get really interested in the movement of the joy that you're feeling, not the ideal. Don't, the, remember, the ideal is just the initial thing in the formal mental practice, but we really want to practice when it's strong, let go of the ideal, the, the, the people, like all your students, abstractly, because you're not having to teach them right now, you know, and get really interested in the movement of love, you know, the movement of including and just the aliveness of including everything, because that will be useful then when the circumstances change and you actually have to interact with them. <laughs> We have to leave it here. So next week uh, we'll have small groups, and we'll start our small groups a little earlier, and we'll save the last ten minutes or so to do a little ritual. I had a thought of uh, there's a beautiful song that uh, they sing in the Tikkun Han tradition uh, about the refugees. So I'll get a recording of that. Some people were inspired by the little knot tying ritual that was in Tara, Tara Brock's talk. If anybody wants to go re-listen to that section and uh, sort of transcribe or just get the instructions for that, that would be great. Anybody want to do that? Interested in doing that? Not that? Great. That would be great. And then, why don't you send it to me? Yeah, do you, did you listen to her talk? Oh, no, I didn't. Well, on the website, the Buddhist Studies website, uh, I sent the link to Tara Brock's talk on the three refuges. It's a great talk. In that, um, they do this little knot time. So, oh, you have? Yeah. Do you want to just kind of spell it out and then I'll send it to the whole group? And then I'll bring some string, but if you have your own particular kind of string that you want to use, you can bring it. But I'll have some silk thread or something. And we can do that as we do the refuges. You know, we tie a knot and then you can keep that string and put it around your Buddha or you can put it around your wrist or whatever you want in each of the knots can remind you. So for those of you who like uh, a more physical expression of the ritual, then we'll do that together at the end. Uh, and if there's any other part that you'd like to include, uh, send me an email and we'll see if we can organically put together a nice 10-minute ritual at the end of our seven-week course in the three refuges. Okay, so let's just take a few seconds. Let's go to the words. No, I think just because it's a little late, you just do yours and then we'll end.
Sarah Lauder Chen. It's a great way to help support everybody about their own retreats and so we appreciate helping you do this. Um, the other thing is that if Or just contact the center and we'll forward it to John. Yeah. So that's a great experience to go and help with some of the stuff. That's a really great way to get up here over there and just do some good work up there. Fun to hard. All the other. And there's a garden work party. Oh, yes. Sunday? Sunday, 8 to 11. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.